This is the Civil Wrongs Podcast from the Institute for Public Service Reporting at the University of Memphis in WKNO-FM. Here we examine historical cases of racial terror and analyze their effect on present-day injustices. I'm your host, Laura Faith Cabetta. Be advised that we talk about police brutality and other forms of violence. You'll also hear a racial slur. In this season, we examine the lynching of a black man named L. Persons in 1917 in Memphis, Tennessee. He was accused of murdering a teenage white girl named Antoinette Rappel. Despite unreliable evidence, he was burned near the murder scene without a trial in front of thousands of people, including women and children. No one was ever charged for his lynching. In episode one, we shared what we know about what led to the lynching from newspapers, police reports, and an investigation by the NAACP. In episode two, we talked with descendants and relatives of people connected to this story. L. Person's great-grandniece, the great-granddaughter of Antoinette Rappel's aunt and uncle, and the grandson of a man who was in the lynching crowd. In this episode, we discuss police interrogation tactics in 1917 and their connection to false confessions today. We talked to a researcher who studies the intersection of psychology and criminal justice. We also talked to a former Memphis police chief who lived the complexities of race and policing. And we examine cases identified by local reporters as possible cases of false confessions. When we think about innocent people who are wrongfully convicted, we tend to hear this phrase, they maintained their innocence. Hearing a person consistently profess their innocence reinforces the idea that, yeah, the person may not have committed the crime. Maybe law enforcement got it wrong. Sure, a guilty person may claim innocence, but an innocent person definitely would, right? According to a database of exonerations, one in every eight people cleared since 1989 actually confessed to the crime. So why would an innocent person confess to a crime they didn't commit? Experts argue the answer lies in how police interrogate suspects. Dr. Haley Cleary has studied how psychology plays out in police interrogations. She's an associate professor at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. She focuses on how youth brain development and trauma can make them especially vulnerable to false confessions or coercion by police. But a lot of those same concepts make adults vulnerable too. In 1917, when L. Persons was lynched, police torture during interrogations was known as the third degree. They would often beat suspects into a confession. One Memphis newspaper said the sheriff and detectives were, quote, past masters in the art of the third degree and coaxed, cajoled, beat, whipped, threatened, and pleaded with him. Nineteen years later, the U.S. Supreme Court deemed that type of coercion unconstitutional. It not only violated people's rights, it also didn't accomplish what police said it would, help them get accurate information about the crime. But Cleary argues the psychological interrogation tactics that replaced beatings can be just as harmful and still lead to inaccurate information, or worse, false confessions. People are more likely to attribute other people's behaviors to their own internal states and to underestimate the power of situational influences on others' decision-making. And so, you know, the reaction that folks in my field get constantly is, why would you confess to a crime you never committed? 
I would never conf- confess to a crime I didn't commit. And people don't realize how powerful that situation is in the moment and how these manipulative tactics can change the suspect's perception of the benefits of confessing and the costs of continued denial. And that cost-benefit analysis gets turned upside down in the moment, particularly if the suspect is fatigued or confused or depleted or stressed. And in that moment, right, confession can actually seem like the best, most rational choice because it ends the stress. It ends the pressure and people time and time and time again will tell you, I just wanted to go home. I wanted it all to stop and I wanted to go home. The manipulative tactics can include police flat out lying to suspects about evidence they don't have. And it's perfectly legal. These methods, for example, using um, trickery or deception to, um, to trick suspects have been pretty consistently upheld by the courts. And these psychological methods have replaced the third degree tactics of the, ta- of the past, excuse me, and in many departments have really become the norm. Um, um, we know that there are certain training firms out there who hold fast to these old methods, even though research shows that they um, do create perceptions of coercion and do elicit unreliable information. Um, and then also, you know, my colleagues and I have found that police training can also perpetuate informally, right? So detectives learn on the job from those who came before them. And in the absence of a better alternative, police are going to use what they know, what they've been trained to do in the past. And the average person, like someone in a jury, has little to no knowledge on how to spot manipulative interrogation tactics that may twist the truth. I think it's lulled us into a false sense of complacency, right? Because if you, if an a lay person who, who is not a psychologist or doesn't study police interrogation watches a video of an interrogation, it can look harmless, right? A lot, you know, we're not talking about police necessarily who are beating on the table or yelling at suspects, although that certainly does happen sometimes, but it's not oftentimes like the movies. James Bolden would know. He joined the Memphis Police Department the same year Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated here. He served in various roles in MPD through more than three decades of changes and eventually became chief of police. He also grew up in neighboring Fayette County in a mostly black community that was constantly terrorized by police, both physically and psychologically. We used to play in a park in South Memphis called Lincoln Park. And there were officers that would play Russian roulette with some of us in the park, you know, uh, and in order to try to make you tell something that you didn't know. Some of my uh, associates uh, ended up, uh, you know, sometimes confessing to things that they didn't do simply because they were fearful, okay? And interrogation, depending upon how it's done, can be very, very uh harmful psychologically, uh, you know, to the people. Bolden says there were also times when he was growing up that family and friends would disappear for a couple of days because they had been picked up by the police for an interrogation about a crime. But they were never processed, so there was no record of their presence at the police station. He says it became known as the secret docket 
and was a common practice. They could interrogate you about any particular crime or anything that had happened, and no one could get to you, no one could talk to you. You were just, you were just isolated. That's a form of interrogation that's, uh, you know, it's terrible from a psychological standpoint. From a, a, you know, just a humanistic, uh, it's inhumane to do those things, but that was happening in our community. And interrogations like that, you can imagine if you deprive someone of sleep, if you deprive them of food, if you deprive them of shelter and everything. Uh, There were times when people would be locked up in jail and the sails were cold, they didn't have clothing or something like that in order to uh, 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 try to uh, get a confession. And that's wrong. And so those types of things, uh, you know, we found out that they were quite common in law enforcement, you know, for you to be uh, incarcerated that way. Though he had several traumatic encounters with police during his childhood, one incident in particular stood out when he was 14 years old. Police officers stopped him while he was walking home one night. And they uh, asked me about a friend of mine. And of course, uh, being a a young man, we were told, you know, just don't um, get involved. If you didn't have to be involved with law enforcement, then don't get involved. So I just told them that I didn't, you know, I didn't know him. Uh, And so one of the police officers, he called called me a nigger and said, I I don't want to see you here on the street anymore. We're going to lock you up. Before he left, he said the officers had attempted to get his head in the window of their car. He knew enough from friends and family that police did this so that they could roll up the window and hold him there as they beat him with a nightstick. They eventually let him go without hurting him physically, but the psychological toll changed the course of his life. He decided then, while crying in his mother's arms that night, that he would become a police officer. She said, that doesn't make sense. Why would you want to be a police officer? I said, because I want to make sure that they don't do that to another young boy. Bolden rose through the ranks at the Memphis Police Department and saw interrogations where harmful psychological tactics changed form but were still being perpetuated. Many times we confuse interviewing with interrogation. If I'm interviewing you, that means that I'm not placing you in an accusatory uh, position that sometimes uh, we enter into an interrogation assuming that the person is guilty and everything is geared toward that way and in an interrogation. And you have to be extremely careful. While it's not, you know, it's not unlawful, but still, psychologically, doing an interrogation, it can, could have an impact on the type of response that you, that you get. Bolden said changing that culture in police departments is hard. And as the public has demanded more accountability, some officers are deciding to leave. But there's still a long way to go. What's happening now? No one wants to be a police officer because some will say, well, we can't police. Well, sure you can police. You can police. 
But what we're saying is that you police, but you police within the confines of the Constitution. It says that this is what we can do. And if you go beyond that, or if you abuse the authority that has been given you, then there are checks and balances that's going to pull you back. And there's a price to pay for that. We can't do what was done 40, 50 years ago and expect it to be acceptable. We have to have to adapt to the times. Society is not going to adapt to law enforcement. Law enforcement has to adapt to the wills and the culture of, of the society in which we live. In recent years, reporters in Memphis have identified serious concerns about how local police have interrogated suspects that could lead to false confessions. Take Terrell Johnson. In 2013, he was 17 years old and had been arrested because police suspected he was the getaway driver in a robbery and murder case. The real getaway driver was eventually identified, but not before the teenager buckled under the pressure, falsely confessed, and spent two months in juvenile detention. He did not have a lawyer in the interrogation room. Initially, his mother, Hope Chambers, was there, but she told the Institute for Public Service Reporting in 2018 that police made her leave just before they pressured him to confess. Without a recording, the full details are hidden. Then there's Terrence Coleman Jr. In 2017, police suspected him of murdering his co-worker, who carpooled with him that day. Coleman's lawyer told the Commercial Appeal that Memphis police interrogated him for nearly 12 hours. He also said that police handcuffed him to a chair in a cold room with nothing but his shorts and shoes as his clothes were tested for gunpowder residue. The lawyer added that police threatened to give Coleman's address to a local gang if he didn't cooperate. After hours of this treatment, Coleman agreed to sign papers about his denials, thinking it would all be over and he could go home. But it turns out he was signing a confession. There was no recording of the interrogation to confirm or deny Coleman's account. As the murder investigation continued, an additional suspect was arrested on separate murder charges. One of the detectives who interviewed Coleman was charged with misconduct. Allegations of the detective intimidating and beating suspects stretched back to 1997, the commercial appeal reported. The police department began a review of all the cases the detective had touched. By May 2021, local prosecutors asked a judge to dismiss Coleman's case, but did not share why. We reached out to Coleman to hear his story, but he recently left Memphis and is trying to settle into his new life. But he sent a text. It says, A lot of people don't understand what goes on in interrogations. So, how can the criminal justice system prevent false confessions? A look into one solution after the break. Hi, I'm Rob Grayson, Morning Edition host at WKNOFM. You know, it's getting harder to remember a time before the city had NPR News. And that's because it's been 50 years since this station brought it to Memphis, along with everything else you've come to expect from listener-supported public radio. Our mission is still the same, excellence in broadcasting. What has changed is how we reach listeners, like via this podcast, a collaboration with the Institute for Public Service Reporting. So whether WKNO is on your radio, computer, iPhone, or smart speaker, 
you're still getting the best public media Memphis has to offer. Learn more about us or become a supporter at WKNOFM.org or download the WKNO app. An increasing number of states are requiring police departments to record interrogations from start to finish. The thinking goes that if there's hard evidence of what went on in the interrogation room, police will be less likely to use questionable methods, juries and judges can examine confessions for themselves instead of relying on police reports, and police departments will have fewer lawsuits against them based on he said, she said arguments. As of 2022, police in 30 states must now record interrogations of suspects in serious crimes, according to the Innocence Project. Tennessee is not one of them. It's not for lack of trying. In the past 20 years, state legislators here introduced three bills that would require recorded interrogations. The most recent time, in 2011, the bill made it to a House subcommittee, where the first legislator to speak against the bill was Representative Eddie Bass a former sheriff. He argued that one glitch in a recording could be grounds to let a child rapist go free. My very first trip to the Legislative Plaza was in 1993 as a new sheriff to work or lobby against this bill. It's been around that long. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a bad bill then. It's a bad bill now. And ladies and gentlemen, as I've said many times, I'm here for the victims. The victims are victims not by choice. The defendants are defendants by their own choosing. And all we're going to do with this bill is give them avenues to get out of what they've done. I think this is a bad bill. I encourage everyone to vote against it. Thank you. Supporters of the bill countered it would protect law enforcement from frivolous lawsuits. But not once during the 30-minute debate did anyone mention the benefit to innocent people accused of crimes? The bill failed. Still, some police and sheriff departments in Tennessee record interrogations on their own because they see the benefit of transparency. The research arm of the U.S. Department of Justice surveyed law enforcement agencies across the nation that recorded interrogations. Those agencies said that the recording policies provided better evidence for convictions. Until very recently, the Memphis Police Department did not mandate recorded interviews with suspects. But after an investigation from the Institute for Public Service Reporting, they crafted a policy that went into effect in 2019. Now, every interrogation in the department's homicide unit must be recorded from the time the interrogator enters the room with the suspect until the time they leave. The recordings are then treated as evidence. On the federal level, U.S. Representative Steve Cohen from Memphis co-sponsored a bill providing grants to help police and sheriff departments buy video equipment for recording interrogations. It was introduced in July 2020, following the George Floyd murder by police. The bill hasn't progressed since then. Dr. Haley Cleary, the psychologist we heard from earlier, said police departments are unlikely to implement changes without some external checks and balances. Culture change is hard. And, you know, again, I think police rightly point out that folks like me are, or in my world, um, don't have investigative experience and sometimes don't appreciate the difficult or dangerous nature of their jobs. I try very hard to acknowledge that publicly and to lead with that because 
I don't know what it's like to be a detective. Um, you know, I don't know what it's like to have a victim's family calling me tearfully, begging for a resolution to the case. But what I do know is I'm part of a team of scientists that generate through science information that can help them do their jobs better. And I try to share that with law enforcement professionals at every turn um, because we all want the same thing, right? Public safety is important. Due process rights are also important, you know? Convicting the right person within a system that is rife with institutional bias is important. The echoes of injustices that burned L. Persons still live with us today, and both are often true when examining history and its connection to the present. So many things change, and so many things stay the same. Even the place where L. Persons was lynched is virtually untouched by development. Margaret Vandiver, the lynching researcher we met in episode one, said that's why Lynching Sites Project of Memphis, the Wolf River Conservancy, and U.S. Representative Steve Cohen are working to preserve the site. It's rather extraordinary that we are standing here uh, listening to insects and frogs and we are in a site that seems rural and yet Memphis is all around us. Uh, the city grew out, grew east and kept growing and kept growing, but this area was never developed. It was uh, left in a condition that's surprisingly similar to what it was a hundred years ago. That makes it all the more urgent that we preserve it as closely as we can to its current condition because there are not many sites like this. The Wolf River Conservancy plans to extend a community trail to the site so the public has access to this history and learns what happened to L. Persons. Construction is expected to start in 2025. Representative Cohen has also introduced a bill that would make the L. Persons lynching site the first to be included in the National Park Service. This pivotal moment in Memphis history offers critical insight into today's injustices. It's hard to look at head on, but if we don't, we run the risk of perpetuating a past we swore we left behind. Wrongs is a project of the University of Memphis's Institute for Public Service Reporting. This podcast was written by me, Laura Faith Cabetta. Audio production is by Christopher Blank with WKNOFM. Our original music was composed by Andrew J. Crutcher. This work is made possible by donations to the Institute for Public Service Reporting, WKNOFM, and Report for America. If you support our work, visit psrmemphis.org, subscribe to our newsletter, and consider making a donation.